Hello, and welcome to Unhedged, a candid discussion of markets and mechanisms. I am your host, Frank Trois, a 25-year-plus veteran of the markets, both bull and bear. Joining me on the show are market participants ranging from hedge funds to fintech, and as diverse and eclectic a group as winemakers and priests. All of us, like you, asking the same question we all do when we turn on the TV nowadays, why? Unhedged is a weekly podcast, and on occasion a bi-weekly podcast, based on the subject matter. You can subscribe to Unhedged through iTunes. As always, your feedback is appreciated, both good and bad. So let's get started. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to SohoCap.com slash unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Unhedged. This is Frank Troist, your host, and our guest today is Ajay Segal from NuVest Capital. And I hope you've had the opportunity to listen to our two prior segments with some great stories and anecdotes regarding the industry and Ajay's experience at GIC. And Ajay, if you don't mind, I think our listeners would, would find it very, very helpful in these interesting times. Uh, today, you, you have a separate entity, uh, you have a separate fund with NuVest Capital. And one of the things I think is most intriguing, going, going back to what you said earlier in, in regards to the, the time you spent, for example, with, with um, Ray Dalio, mm-hmm. or, excuse me, not Dalio, with Rob Arnott <coughs> in, uh, during the crash. And <clears throat> these are interesting times. They, the, the, I, I thought one of the most interesting points you brought up in one of your, your latest research pieces was that of, of um, and literally I'm going to quote this here verbatim as I look at it, but uh, you know, of the 70 asset classes tracked by Deutsche Bank, uh, 90% posted negative returns in, in 2018. And, and uh, you know, here at a high level, what, what are, are we truly in a new paradigm or, or is, do, do the rules that you learned in the industry still apply? Um, yeah, it's interesting that uh, <clears throat> um, we should um, look at 2018 and, and wonder whether we are in a new paradigm. Because seen in isolation, right, 2018 was probably one of the most unusual years this same uh, Deutsche Bank uh, <clears throat> study that you cited um, reported that uh, since 1900, so we're talking about a history that goes back almost 120 years, there has never been another year uh, when more than 90% of the asset classes that they track, and they track something like 70 asset classes, more than 90% of them at negative returns uh, in 2018. So just looking at 2018 in isolation, you would say, or you'd be uh, tempted to conclude that we are in a new paradigm. <clears throat> but 
I like to think that uh, these unusual years, uh, they do come along every once in a while. Maybe <clears throat> not as unusual as this one, um, but we should not um, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And what do I mean by that? <clears throat> um, you could look at a year like 2018 and say that, wow, if everything went down together, then what's the point of diversifying? Diversification would not have worked uh, in a year like uh, 2018. <clears throat> but that's tantamount, I think, to throwing the baby out with the bathwater because diversification is one of those uh, enduring uh, principles in the field of investment. There's one lesson that I took away <laughs> from my 30-year experience in GIC. Uh, it is that you should be well diversified and not um, <clears throat> uh, diversified in the sense of a 60-40 portfolio, which we discussed earlier. It's not true diversification, um, but you should really uh, try to diversify your risk in such a way that no single um, source of returns uh, is carrying all the risk of the portfolio. So diversify your risk, uh, not so much your, your capital allocation. So that, I think, is a very important lesson uh, to remember <clears throat> uh, at the back of your mind as you look at years like 2018 and wonder if, wow, gosh, it doesn't make any sense to diversify. I might as well just hold all cash. Or if you had just gone back one year earlier, 2017, uh, it was also a highly unusual year because in 2017, <clears throat> it was actually just the flip side of 2018 where almost every asset class uh, went up. So it didn't really matter whether you were in um, Asian equities or U.S. equities or Asian bonds. Basically, every asset class uh, was in the green. So again, two very unusual years side by side. Uh, but over a longer span of history, three years, five years, ten years, diversification always works. I always, I always go back to the great quote where, uh, and, and I've heard you use this more than a few times, and I think it's very true, where they say that diversification truly is the only free lunch uh, that, that, that you can get. And, but but let, let's play back to some of the concerns that, that, that are here. So if we, uh, let me take a contra view, because again, I know it'd be interesting for our viewers or listeners to hear what you have to say. So like when we look at the emerging markets that have, have gone through the experience that they have, what, what's your observation on that? And, and, you know, like if you talk to the average investor today, they're going to have a very strong opinion one way. And I know you're thinking almost in, in the exact opposite. I mean, what, what, what should investors be looking at there relative to, you know, the emerging markets relative to the U.S.? Yeah, I think up until um, maybe fourth quarter of last year, uh, emerging markets had become almost like a, a, a pariah <laughs> in the investment world, a dirty word, if you like. Uh, nobody wanted to hear about emerging markets, be it uh, equities or bonds. Um, and I don't blame the investors because the uh, returns had been, had been uh, dismal. And uh, given that uh, you had to take actually 
you have to take on more risk in going into emerging markets. Uh, it kind of made a mockery of the old um, adage, you know, uh, taking uh, higher risk leads to higher returns. But in this case, uh, higher risk just led to bigger losses. Um, mm. So the medium-term um, uh, record for emerging markets had not been a good one. And that led to many people just, um, I think, uh, capitulating and saying, you know, we, we don't really need uh, to be in emerging markets. We should just be in uh, the developed markets and not even uh, all developed markets. Maybe we should just be in the U.S. equities because up until, I think, uh, late last year, U.S. equities were by far the best um, equities market. And uh, in 2018, up until I think October, it was the only um, developed market, large developed market that was uh, giving positive returns. Even Europe and, and, and Japan uh, had negative returns. So I think you had a, a situation um, last year, which was, again, very unusual uh, the markets were very polarized. Only U.S. equities were, were giving positive returns and everything else uh, was in the red and emerging markets were at the, at the bottom of the list. Um, so things were stretched to the, to the maximum. And I think those are the kind of situations that I would say, I go back to my GIC training. Uh, those are the situations you want to look at closely and see what are the asset classes that people are totally in love with and what are the asset classes that uh, people just don't want to touch even with a barge pole. Um, and I would say mm -hmm. the emerging market um, assets would, would belong to the latter. <laughs> but if we call it, let, it's interesting, you know, you bring up uh... – uh, your, your analogy of the barge pole, and it's kind of interesting to go back to our earlier segment when you talked about the the Rothschilds, mm -hmm. and their old quote was, "You know, you wait until there's blood yes. in the streets be, be, before you invest." But to be candid, the when we look at the blood in the streets um, mm -hmm. image, there's a lot of negative news out there, and and it's kind of hard to, you know, on the one hand, excluding from the U.S. perspective, the the entertainment value of what we're seeing coming out of out of Washington. But you have a Federal Reserve which which right now really runs the risk of over tightening. So between, you know, A raising interest rates and then B what they're doing in terms of pairing back QE and what that represents to the system. And and at the same time, I, I think we're hearing more and more in the press the concern, you know, with the Federal Reserve what that stress means for the system in terms of the fixed income market. And, and, you know, is, is, can, can we look at the emerging markets and ignore what we're seeing in terms of those stress points in fixed income, or should we wait for like, for example, everybody's expecting something will blow up in Europe. It might be Italy or, or whomever. Should we, should we wait until that's said and done and then look at the emerging markets? Um, I think the concerns that people have about, uh, first of all, the, the global, um, economy, they're quite well known. Everyone by now, unless you just landed on the planet, 
everyone <laughs> to look right now that the global economy is slowing, right? The slowdown is in the works. Even the U.S., which uh, you know everybody thought uh, up until fairly recently that they were very resilient, they were immune to um, you know uh, uh, forces that were uh, at work outside the U.S. Um, but you know we've recently discovered that even the U.S. economy is showing signs of weakness. And the stock market, I think, is, is, is also reflecting that. So the slowdown is definitely um, a concern. But um, we are not at the point where we should, I think, be, be worried about recession. At least the data to date uh, does, does not uh, support the idea that we are headed uh, for a recession. Of course, in the, in the, in the coming weeks and months, um, the, the data could deteriorate and we might have to change the, our opinion. But as it stands now, the evidence does not support a recession scenario. Um, so that's as far as the global economy is concerned. Now, with respect to emerging markets, I think, oh, again, the concerns are fairly well known. Uh, let's start with the 800-pound gorilla in the emerging market world, which is China. Uh, mm. A lot of... Uh, pessimism on the outlook for the Chinese economy. Everybody knows that the Chinese growth rate has slowed down. Um, you know, it's debatable whether it is 5% or 6%, but it's in that ballpark, uh, which is a lot slower than uh, what it used to be. Uh, but there are also concerns about the debt levels in, in, in China. Um, so the, again, the concerns are very well known. The more interesting question, for me at least, from an investment perspective, is how much of these concerns uh, have been discounted by the prices? And when I look at how much the, the Chinese market has uh, fallen um, and, and, and what the valuation levels are, it seems to suggest to me that uh, most, if not all the uh, scare stories that uh, <clears throat> people love to to, to share um, these days about China are probably uh, already priced in. And that makes it very interesting uh, for me uh, as an investor. If I'm prepared to take at least, let's say, a 12-month view uh, or a 12-month horizon, at least then I think it is a good um, risk-reward ratio because I believe that most of the, the bad news is in the price and from here, even the mildest um, positive development could result in, you know, assets being re-rated upwards. And we seem to be, we seem mm -hmm. to be seeing a bit of that, you know, since uh, I think the uh, emerging markets led by China kind of hit uh, bottom sometime in October of last year. And in, in absolute as well as in relative terms, uh, we have now, I think, uh, had seen a, a pretty strong bounce. Then the question is, you know, uh, where do we go from here? You bring up a very good point on, on um, you know, from a valuation perspective, like, like, let's take the other bit of headline that's in the news, you know, the, all the dramedy mm -hmm. regarding mm -hmm. uh, Brexit. And, and 
I, you know, again, not, not only my opinion, but, but other guests that we've had on the show that, that, that it is priced in. So to your point, <clears throat> when you have all the bad news out right. in the open, valuations are, mm-hmm. are lower. So from just from a pure price standpoint, you're in a position to say things mm-hmm. look cheaper. Um, then, then it comes down to what would you say? So now as you, you speak to investors, you're saying, look, we all know this is ugly, but at the same time, it's ugly and cheap. So this is the time you're supposed to be buying these. At the same time, what would be the, the, the disclaimer on the systemic shock? Like what would be the What's on your radar to say, you know, like, hey, if that happens, that that's a new data point. Like, like for example, um, let me give you the the, the mm-hmm. silly one to start. But but uh, you know, the silly one would be, you know, a Trump impeachment. You know, to mm-hmm. the degree that that starts. But I think a real one would be like, what if, um, you know, what if there was a sovereign default uh, in Europe and and something hit that? I mean, so. What, how do you explain that to investors, and, and does that change your investment thesis, or, or is it just damn the torpedoes? We're still going to just we'll just wait yeah, it I, out. I don't think we should be uh, overly um, simplistic and say, okay, just because it is cheap and all the bad news is known, so let's you know back up the truck and uh, you know buy emerging markets and and then go for a long holiday. Uh, <laughs> if only life were mm-hmm. that simple. <laughs> I, I think you do have to uh, monitor the situation. And by that, I mean that, you know, um, the recession risk uh, is still, uh, it's, not, it's not a trivial risk. So if it becomes the base case, so if that becomes the central scenario that indeed uh, the global economy is headed towards a recession uh, led by the U.S., then... I would say all bets off. Even the cheap will get cheaper. Even the emerging markets already cheap. Right. Maybe they will outperform by going down less as they did uh, in the last, you know, quarter of 2018. Everything went down because the U.S. was falling like a stone, especially in December. And remarkably, the emerging markets also fell, but they fell uh, by less. So you could still outperform in relative terms, but you'd still lose money. Um, so one, one uh, clear um, risk to monitor is the risk of recession. And right now, it doesn't appear like, you know, it is, it is a, um, the odds are very high. And, and, to, and to your point, it, it, it's interesting if we, if, on, on the point of the recession, and, and the subtlety of your statement is that we're saying that, you know, a U.S.-led recession, and, and I think that's important to state, but to a certain extent, too, in, in the, and again, forgive me as an American, but to a certain extent, it's self-inflicted. I mean, we, we, you know, one, we have this trade war with China. So here's China already going through a slowdown, and we decide to maybe we use that as leverage in the negotiations, but it's almost a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And then literally two months later, we go through a government shutdown where folks are now, uh, you know, it's funny, in the United States, half the people are, uh, uh, you know, thrilled because the IRS is shut down so they don't have to pay taxes. And then there's the other half that are upset because they're not getting their tax refunds uh, from the IRS. But economists now are starting to talk about the the, the shutdown having an impact on the economy. And I, there was a point the other day that I thought was very interesting where someone said, you know, if, if the administration could just get out of its own way, 
Um, the recession would take a more natural progression, which would be somewhere out in 2021 or maybe 2022 versus now from a policy perspective, we almost, and, and again, behind that, you know, we have the federal reserve with two modes of tightening in place where his point was, we're, we're almost doing this to ourselves. We, we don't need to, to be here now if we could avoid it. Do, do you think that's a, a, an accurate statement of, of where we are? Is it, or is it something that, you know, it's just inevitable? Uh, it's a good point. Um, you see, uh, if you look at, past cycles, um, every recession, um, I think can be, I don't want to be sound too, too uh, harsh in saying this, but uh, almost every recession can be attributed to actions of the central bank. And the central bank, uh, nobody enjoys throwing an economy into a recession, but they do it almost like what the doctor orders because inflation it's a clear and present uh, risk to the economy. And in order to um, basically bring inflation under control, uh, you need to tighten the monetary conditions and you end up uh, throwing the economy to a recession. So that has been the, the traditional uh, cause, if you like, uh, for a of a recession. Um, but today, I think the situation is somewhat different in the sense that inflation, if you, you know, uh, look at it globally, is not yet a, a major problem. So if the, if the Fed, uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve uh, decides to, you know, tighten even further, uh, it could only be because they are concerned that uh, uh, they want to be preemptive. Uh, they could be concerned that, you know, uh, inflation will become a problem because unemployment is already so low. Um, so why not take some preventive medicine uh, before it becomes a problem? But I think that the, the risk with that approach is that uh, you have a lot of debt in the system. Um, you could end up making a, a policy mistake in the sense that um, the economy goes into recession uh, even before inflation could become a problem. So I think that is where there is mm -hmm. some um, discomfort or uh, maybe a divergence of views between market participants and where the Fed uh, sits. So I think from the market's perspective, um, the Fed is overdoing it and there's no need, you know, for such... Uh, 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 tightness in, in monetary conditions and why not, you know, uh, wait and see until you, some people say you should wait until you can see inflation, uh, the white, I don't know how the expression goes, the white of the eyes, you know, uh, until inflation is staring you mm -hmm. in the face. And maybe mm -hmm. that's when you should uh, um, uh, raise interest rates further. So there is this, this uh, gap in perception uh, between what the economy needs, huh? between what the Fed thinks the economy needs and what the market believes uh, the economy needs. And that uh, perception gap, I believe, is what has caused a lot of volatility in the markets. And it remains to be seen uh, how that gap will be closed. But I think the most recent uh, comments from the Fed seem to suggest that uh, uh, that the Fed is willing to uh, take a step back 
they're calling it the, the, the pause now, uh, and, and, and watch for more data before deciding whether there's a need to raise interest rates further. So I think that comes as a bit of a relief uh, to the market and, and a very welcome relief uh, because, you know, the, 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 uh, the markets were at a, at a, almost at a breaking point in trying to understand uh, the psyche of the, of the Fed and what this could all lead to uh, prior to the recent statements. And to, and to your point, you know, if we go back to you, you and I both remember mm-hmm. when, when Volcker was the Fed chairman and, and, and at that time he was very clear, you know, to your point about an anti-inflationary bias and he was going to raise rates wherever they needed to go in order to, to, to completely squeeze inflation out of the system. And, you know, we all used to watch those monetary, mm-hmm. those M1, yes. 2 and 3 numbers every Thursday. And... And I and I think to to your point, the the challenge now for for participants is on the one hand, Powell as as, as a new chair, he's, he has to show mm-hmm. independence from the administration, and uh, but at the same time, I think the catch twenty two that they're in is you have both the president and in all candor the the risk of the treasury secretary who who also has made comments that were not normal for a treasury secretary mm-hmm. to make, um, where where I think. You know, the extension of your point is that, that the markets are mm-hmm. looking for who is the adult in the room mm-hmm. that, that they can rely on. And, and uh, but again, I think it's a very, very valid point. And it would be a shame here now to, to see from a, a policy perspective that we, we inadvertently drive ourselves there. And it seems now that we're getting to a, a stress point in the system where that, that could happen. Um, Ajay, again, this has been an absolute delight today to have you on the show. Again, thank you very, very much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And hopefully this is not the last time we'll have you because over 30 years, we're, I'm sure we'll be back on again talking about currencies and fixed income. And, and uh, we, didn't even, we didn't even have a chance to talk about any of the technology stocks in the United States. So selfishly, we of will have not. you back on if you don't mind. Back. Fantastic. And for our listeners, thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of Unhedged. This is Frank Choice, your host, and you have a wonderful weekend, and we'll look forward to talking with you again thank next you, you week. Too, Frank. Ajay, have Bye-bye. a wonderful weekend. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to SohoCap.com slash Unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. And that'll do it for this week's segment of Unhedged. As always, thank you for tuning in, and we'll look forward to talking and speaking next time. Take care.